Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Joseph Borg, former director of the Alabama Securities Commission. And today I'm joined by a guest co-host, Ben Edwards, associate professor of law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. We'll be discussing Director Borg's multi-decade career as a state securities regulator. This is the second in a two-part interview. If you haven't heard the first part yet, I'd suggest taking a pause in this episode and listening to part one first. Joe, welcome back. It's great to have you again as part of this extended interview co-hosted with my friend Ben Edwards from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I'd like to talk with you about some of your perspectives on securities regulation that you've seen a lot over the years. I just looked at a press release on the occasion of your retirement that says that during your leadership of the Alabama Securities Commission, the commission has helped convict 378 fraudsters criminally, which has led to 2,734 years of imprisonment for those securities-related offenses. You've returned over a quarter billion dollars to the state general fund and also ordered over a quarter billion dollars in restitution to victims. So you've seen a lot over the years. I wondered if you could maybe talk about some of the commonalities that those cases have. What makes your antenna twitch, whether there's maybe fraud afoot? And are there any common characteristic with some of these over 300 scammers you've helped convict over the years? Thank you for having me back, Ben and Andrew. It's a pleasure to be back with you on the podcast. We do a lot of outreach to the general public saying, look, there are lots of red flags and warnings that you should look at before you trust your money to anybody, especially if you haven't met them before, you don't know them. And even if you have, do some homework. We try and tell people you worked hard for your money and you just can't let it go that easily when somebody promises you a return that sounds fantastic. What makes us twitch on this is when we see things like, oh, gee, these guys are making a lot of money and they're paying back these great dividends. And you have to think to yourself, does that even make sense? And you get these internet solicitations about get rich quick and make money and great returns. Usually it's a company with something like, and don't tell everybody about this. This is just for us. People ought to say to themselves, I don't know these people. So they're reaching out to me and a hundred thousand of their closest friends, make that a million of their closest friends. And they want me to keep it secret. Does that not raise your antenna? a little bit. And the things that they're promising, doesn't that raise your antenna a little bit? I think that we have an issue why investor education in this country is so important. Ought to be taught from grade school up. In fact, we're starting to do that with some of our programs, teaching at the grade level through high school, going into college on basic facts of saving and investing and how money works and things like that. What I find is that when people get concerned that maybe they're going to outlive their money, look, and we know that's happening. Americans have very little in savings and the lifespan has increased due to medical research and things like that, which is great. But people are afraid of outliving their money and they haven't saved enough. And they've all of a sudden decide they've got to make up a lot of lost time. People don't want the responsibility sometimes of trying to ensure their own future because they don't know what to do with it. It's not that they're stupid or they don't know if they're just lazy. No, they just don't know. And they're willing to trust somebody who says, I've made a lot of money. Let me do it for you. And so we see people who spend more time shopping at the mile, pricing shoes or shirts or suits than they do research in turning $100,000 of their pension fund or retirement fund or their IRA or 401k to somebody 
They don't know, except that their neighbor told them, hey, he's a good guy. He made money. That's the problem we see. So I'm always concerned that when you see outlandish reports of returns, insufficient information about what it is they're investing in, not willing to give you details that are verifiable. So we always say, look, the first thing you ought to do is check with us, whether it's Alabama or Kentucky, Tennessee, it doesn't make a difference. Check with the state. Are these folks licensed and registered to even ask for your money to invest. And if the answer is no, hold on to your wallet. Somebody's about to take it. So there are tons and tons of red flags. And what I would suggest to the folks listening, go to the NASA website, N-A-S-S-A-A.org. Go to the Alabama website, ASC.Alabama.gov. Go to your state website. There are brochures, information, lists of red flag warnings that are out there. And even if you just want to see some of the cases, you can go to our website and we list what happened in all our criminal cases and where these frauds are. There's press releases and documents. Get a feel for what's out there. Because you know, folks, you worked hard for your money. You don't want to lose it to a scammer just because he said, you know what? I'll take care of your future for you. The ones that are going to take care of your future is you plus a registered financial advisor that you've done your homework with, that you get along with, that you know who he is, which by the way, probably now is a good time to plug that anytime you want to know about a financial advisor, whether it's investment advisor or a broker dealer or broker dealer agent, stockbroker, ask for what's called a CRD. The CRD stands for Central Registration Depository. Do you know every stockbroker and investment advisor in the country has a record that's kept by all the states? The IARD is the Investment Advisor Depository. That's a partnership with the SEC and the states. They both own the information that's operated by FINRA. And then you get to finra.org, finra.org, which is the self-regulatory organization for the broker dealers. And on the stockbroker side, the CRD is the equivalent of IARD. Again, has histories of all stockbrokers that pretty much have ever been in business. And there's 600,000 records out, individuals and firms out there that you can get a record on free of charge. That information is owned by FINRA, the old NASD, and the states and administered through a computer system by FINRA as they do on the IAR. So why would you want to give $50,000, $10,000, I don't care if it's $1,000, to somebody who don't know their track record, don't know what their history is, maybe because somebody said they're a good guy? It's your money. Do some homework. It's your money. Protect it. So look at this. I noticed this is a follow-up. You're talking about the CRD, but you don't mention broker check. Is there a reason for that? But broker check is a good system as well, it's, but it's not as complete as the CRD system you might get from the state. Now, if you're doing preliminary review and you want to see if these guys are even registered, yeah, broker check's great. You can use broker check. That broker check is a somewhat truncated set of information, and maybe you don't need all the detail at that point, but if you pull up a broker check and you see this guy's got 15 complaints against them, you might say, I don't want to be complaint number 16. That may be the end of it. But if you are going to look into much more detail, especially if you're talking about much more amounts, pull a broker check and then ask your state for a CRD report as well. A lot of it will be duplicative, but you may find more on the CRD from the state than broker check. With that being said, I do know that Cinema is increasing the information on broker check. But at this point, why limit yourself to one set of information when you can get two free of charge? So complete homework is good. Broker check has got its uses as well. And for a preliminary review, a first start, sure, you'll probably get it easy and quickly off broker check. And it might take an extra day or two from the States. But why don't you get really serious about doing your homework if you plan on doing business with this individual or that firm? It's not just the individuals, it's the firm. You want to know the firm too. 
Excellent. So when you're looking at the future, now that you've left the Alabama Securities Commission, who's taking over? What does the future look like for the ASC? What do you expect? From the perspective of the Alabama Securities Commission, we have such a tremendous staff. We have great resources. Amanda Sen is the new director of the Alabama Securities Commission. She was my chief deputy director for years. She's been with us 15 years. And quite honestly, in the succession plan that we've put together for everybody on the senior level that has left or is leaving, that includes me, my, my other chief deputy before me, we have always had people in place that we are training to take over. I think Amanda will take this to new heights. I think you'll see the level of service. We will not have a break. She will take it to a new level. And I think that we're going to stay involved with everything that we've done before, but maybe a little younger perspective. And obviously, greater technology is being utilized. We've recently done some hires just before I left with some younger investigators who have great computer skills, which is everything now is online. And if you've got to be able to dive into the background of what's going on, where are these emails coming from? How do you pull up records? So yes, I think it's going to be a great future. And I think she'll take it to new height. That's what my dream and, and thinking is. Putting her name to memory, I'm going to be looking forward to having some conversation with her in the future about, about some task force she's run because we all know frauds don't stop and there'll still be a need for enforcement. So turning to a different organization that you've been involved with, the Public Investor Advocate Bar Association, PIABA. I should disclose here that I'm a PIABA member and I'm a past member of PIABA's board of directors. I joined it the advice of Professor Christine Lazaro to learn a lot more about retail side, securities law. What led you to, to join the organization as a regulator? Why do you stay involved? Every time you're trying to improve an agency, you want to get as much information as you can. You want to be able to say, I need as many partners as I can. And yes, yeah, we do sue the industry. There's a bad product. There's a bad broker. But in general, as I said, in when we had the previous conversation in part one, there, I think the purpose is the same, to protect investors. They've got companies and they've got bad brokers and just like there are bad lawyers and bad doctors and bad hairdressers and whatever else. Every industry has got some bad app. Now, the one thing unique about Piaba is that because they are lawyers that are looking to protect investors and bring those cases, which is the way they make their living, let's be fair, that's their purpose too, they usually catch some of the more subtle bad products, bad brokers, because we as state regulators rely on complaints, our own surfing of the net. But when you have an organization like Pialba that's out there that says, we found this new product and it looks like it's bad and it's damaging people, or we're going off to this broker because he's ruined the lives of two or three of my clients. That is information that is helpful to us. And we're somewhat limited in exchanging information with private lawyers. We do have lots of stats on trends and where things are going. But what Piaba is good at is getting us in at the ground floor when we say, do you know this structured product looks like it's negative to most investors, but they're promising that people can make money on this, or at least some broker is, and that is valuable to us. So there is an exchange of information. I have found that I learn a lot from going to the Piaba meetings, listening to what new cases look like, listening to where some lawyers are looking at when things come up. I remember in the analyst cases, and that was that big that billion and a half dollar case, the states all got together, SEC, Senate was involved. And I remember that one of the very, very first cases was a Piano member who brought a case against one of the broker dealers 
and got a recovery. And we took notice of that. Now we were on a parallel track, but we took notice of that and wanted to ask, could we talk to you about how you found this? And at least whatever information that was non-confidential was willingly shared by that Piaba member and others that followed to say, hey, look, there's a real problem here. In turn, I think we've been able, as Alabama Securities, to help out. Especially, I know that I got a lot of kudos from the Piaba members when we did the Morgan Kagan case. And our order hyperlinked a bunch of documents that the Piaba folks were being told did not exist. It's a two-way street. We recognize that Piaba members are lawyers who make a living on a percentage basis or whatever, but we also recognize that there's so much value there. When you find this particular case, it may be a pattern and practice that we need to know about. It may be a bigger fraud. It may lead to a research analyst. It may lead to a mutual fund timing situation. It may lead to a systemic problem in the industry that then we can get with the industry and the members and say, this has got to be fixed. These actions are going to be taken. So yes, I find a lot of value with my friends at Piaba. We hope that they feel the same, that the value we bring to Piaba is worth membership. And so I find that is another vehicle for us to gather information, to be able to exchange some information, although limited sometimes, but it gives us knowledge of what may be out there and what just might be lurking around the corner. And so that's a valuable relationship to us. I'd like to talk about the money that regulators earn as opposed to what those in the private practice, whether it's Piaba or at a defense firm, might earn. And then about the unique funding of the Alabama Securities Commission and its funding sources. Maybe I'll start with that first question. You have served the public for about 30 years now. You probably could have made a lot more money if you had put in a few years at the Alabama Securities Commission and then gone back in-house or gone back to a law firm. What led you to stick with government service, even though it perhaps was not the most lucrative option that you had to you? Sadly, government service is not the most lucrative way to make a living. Remember, I was a lawyer in private practice before, and that practice was decent to me, not to the extent that you could make a lot of money now if I had done something else after 10 years here and done something else. But I guess there's something more valuable than money, and that is personal satisfaction. I felt I was doing good. I will tell you a quick story. There was a victim in North Alabama, a lady, elder lady, and it was only $50,000. We say only $50,000. That was her entire nest egg. She lost $50,000 to a con artist who happened to be out of state, wasn't even in Alabama, but she was Alabama resident. She must have been 98 pounds soaking wet. She was a tiny little lady. We lost this money and we went after the guy and it took us a couple of years. We found the fellow in California. We extradited him back to Alabama. We had him in trial. We got there and we were able to find enough assets to get her money back. Talk about the most thankful lady. But let me tell you what happened in court. It's sentencing. This is hysterical. So we had a very seasoned judge on the bench and we do bring the victim in at sentencing because we want them to see what's going on. And she happened to be there at the courthouse and sitting actually in the jury box because we had asked her about her damages. We wanted that as part of the sentencing report. And you know how motions go back and forth and there was a question about probation. And actually the question had to do with the probation report. And she thought that the judge was about to give him probation and let him loose. And she turned to the judge and said, what, Sonny, are you thinking about letting him go? And she was adamant. And we were like stunned and the judge is kind of looking at her and, and she said, let me tell you something, Sonny, talking to the judge. I rather would have been kicked and beat up in the street because you know not Sonny? I don't have 30 years to save that money again. <laughs> the judges looked at her like, yes, ma'am. 
Thank you for that. Yeah. The trial gave him 20 years in prison. Well, well, that little lady is typical of what we see, especially in the senior sector. That did me so much good to get her that $50,000 back, my entire team. And when we see we can do good and prevent fraud from happening to somebody else, you know what? I can't put a dollar figure on that. And to me, that is why I stayed in government service. In the first conversation we had, Andrew and Ben, I said something. I'm going to bring it back up. You asked me something about going to court and things like that. And I said something about one of the benefits of this job is when I go into court, I'm representing the harm, the folks that can't speak for themselves. And I walk in and I walk in with a, on a white horse and a white hat. And when I leave the courthouse, my hat is still white. My horse is still white. It's not all muddied up. That goes in what I just said. It's the satisfaction of knowing that I can help somebody. I can make a decent living as a state employee. And there are some benefits, especially in Alabama, we got the pension fund, which is really good. But the point of the matter is we do it because we want to. We do it because it's a passion. We do it because we think it's the right thing to do. We do it because it gives us self-satisfaction. And I spent 10 years in private practice, five years in corporate industry. This job has been the most satisfying I've ever had. And it was actually difficult for me to retire, but it was just my time. And that personal self-satisfaction and the ability at my retirement little talk to say, I'm at peace with what I did for the last 30 years. I feel good about what I've done for the last 30 years. I'm proud of the fact that my team and myself were able to help all these folks. Some of them will never realize that we helped them. But if we helped prevent a family from breaking up, getting divorced, and ruining the lives of the kids, then we've done something good. In our last conversation, you talked about the differences in resources that the different states have. And Alabama is one state that has more resources in its securities agency. And you talked about sharing of resources into the agencies that have a lot of resources. There is some obligation to the national system of state regulators to help contribute those resources to the broader efforts of policing the capital markets. I wonder if you could talk about why the Alabama Securities Commission seems to have decent level of resourcing. Of course, there's always a resource constraint that any agency is going to have, but it seems that is less acute in the case of the Alabama Securities Commission. What's the source of that? And are there perhaps some ideas there or reforms that other states might want to implement for their securities regulators if they want to get them to the same level that you built this agency to? I think it's a combination of luck and some past history. The funding mechanism actually predates me to some extent. We've expanded it and made modifications to it. But little history. Back in the 60s, the agency was in a different division. It was actually part of the AG's office at one time. But there were some problems of license selling. In other words, there were some kickbacks. The state convened a team to review whether or not this should have some more autonomy, some more independence. And they set it up along that line, which was the precursor of what we ended up with today. But at some point, it was decided that the agency needed its own source of funding. Now, back then, I'm talking early 90s, maybe one out of 10 Alabamians was in the market. So it was a small market, relatively speaking. The big source of funding that came into the agency, which basically prior to that went to the general fund, all the general fund, was licenses, the $25, $35, $40 licenses. There wasn't really much in way of 
enforcement actions and fines and penalties and things like that. But what they decided to do and what the legislature did for us is said, okay, look, let's give you some dedicated funding. So the agency received investment advisors, which was a small part. The general fund received broker-dealer money, which was the big part, and they gave us exempt transactions. Now, we also had money transmitters, but that was never been a big moneymaker. But the agency recognized, and I think and the legislature did at some point in time, recognized that as more Alabamians got into the markets, this is when, you might remember, this is when defined benefit plans were losing their win, going out of style, and everybody was left on their own to do their 401ks, their Keo plans, their SEP funds, you know, their IRAs. And that drove more people to the markets, which created not only more work for the broker-dealer side, but actually created the investment advisor side. People needed advice on, what do I do with this? How do I invest it? My company's not doing it for me anymore. We don't have a defined benefit plan. So you had broker-dealers, which was a big source of funds, IAs that were growing in funding, which that money was dedicated to the agency. And you had the big event of the 90s, mutual funds, which are exempt registration, exempt filing. We had notice filings, but that's exempt fees. Mutual funds was a huge factor for us. So as time developed, the broker-dealers continued to increase, maybe at a slower pace. IAs came on the scene and mutual funds came on the scene. And we were able to work with ICI and the mutual funds over a number of years and say, look, it's time for a reasonable increase. I would happy to say that we never had a fight with the mutual fund industry. We would talk to them every number of years and say, we think we need to have this increase. Give us a solution on how you think it worked. How do you want it? allocated among the tiers and they would come back with recommendations and we would talk to them and we would compromise and then we would come up with a plan. And then I'd go to legislature and say, look, on mutual fund or on fee structure, this is what's going on in the industry. Here's what the median is. We're below the median. We need to be at the median. And the legislature would say, is there any opposition? And I could say, honestly, no, we worked it out with the industry and they would pass the bill. So we actually get the mutual fund fees, the IA fees, we get our investigative costs back, and the general fund gets the broker-dealer fees, fines and most of the fines and penalties. And so it's now worked out that it's close to a 55-45 split with 65% going to the general fund, but the other money comes back to us. Now, here's the kicker. The legislature was smart enough to say, we recognize that this is money that is not consistent year after year. So if you can keep the savings, if you can make savings, any money you have left over from the previous year that comes to you, you can keep it's rolled over and goes into your fund. So over the years, as we developed our practices and as we increased the business and as we brought good business in on the broker deal side, the IA side, the mutual fund side, as more Alabamians increased in population, as people needed more services, those fees went up. We control our expenses. We spend it where we need it. But then that money left over, we get to carry over, which is one advantage we have over a lot of states where they get an allocation from the funding. And if the state's not doing good, there's less money. Everybody gets cut. Look, we can go into proration too, and we're careful about how we spend it. But the legislature has seen that what we've done is we've taken a agency that I called it sleepy. It wasn't doing as much as it could possibly do. And we brought it to its full potential. And a small state like Alabama that can match up with bigger states like Texas and New York and Massachusetts as the home of mutual fund, we can use our resources to work and get things done in our state. So that's where we went. But 
we made sure the legislature saw that what we were doing with this was that we were enhancing the living, the financial stability of the state and the state residents and said, look, we promise you a first-class operation. We will do what we need to do. For example, in Morgan Keegan, we funded most of that. I know we spent $1.3 million in bringing that case. We got that back as part of court costs and investigative fees, but we were able to bring the states together with their resources, a lot of money from us, but the other states had the expertise and the investigators, and they went through the documents and the paperwork and came up with, we found all we needed to find. And we got $200 million went back to invest. The state's got a $10 million fine. I collected my fees back, my hard expenditures back, and we did a good job for everybody. So the funding, yes, I think other states should have a better funding source. They should be able to get a piece of what they bring in because there's a lot of money that comes in on those fees. And basically we're splitting probably about 60, 40, 55, 45, but that's more than enough for us to operate. In fact, when we do build up a bunch of cash, there are times when we go to the legislature and say, we've got this much in the bank. Why don't you allocate $3 million to law enforcement or forensic sciences or something Let's find a project? We were able to work with the DA's association and the governor's office a number of years ago for a little project called NCFI. It was the DA's idea. The state kicked in a bunch of money, but they were short. They were short money. NCFI is the National Forensics Computer Institute. It is now run by the Secret Service and the DA's Association. It is the primary cybersecurity information center for Secret Service. They graduate thousands of state-level law enforcement folks on internet fraud, financial fraud, cybersecurity, and it's all paid for by DOJ, but we helped build that because they needed the building, the services, the computers, the security. And we were able to contribute some of that from us because we saw the value of what that brings. And now everything's coming into the state, FBI and everybody else. So yes, we look at those opportunities to fund projects like that. We did a lot of projects educating prosecutors around the state to take some pressure off of us on prosecuting these cases. Now we've got some of the bigger counties that know how to bring a securities case. We are always there to help them. Maybe we'll play second chair instead of first chair, but for the smaller ones that we're always there. But the funding has allowed us to become a leader in this space. It helps fund our education programs. It helps fund our outreach programs. It helps fund even our outreach to small business to develop things that they maybe they need and bring them to us. So yeah, I am proud of the funding sources in Alabama. There's always improvements could be made. And, and I think it's a great model. But if every state would say, hey, if you guys are bringing in $25 million, maybe you ought to be able to take a good portion of that to fund your agency and bring it up to where you think it ought to be. Some states are well-funded, others aren't. Some are much smaller, some need some help. But I do believe that those states that have resources should, and our responsibility is to share with those states that don't. We just hope that sometime in the future, those states and those legislators will realize that they have a hidden diamond there and let it shine by giving it the funding that it needs. And I know every state's got to fix potholes and they got to do this and they got to fund that and fund that. And there's always a shortage of funds. But if it's a successful agency and it's paying for itself, allow it to do so and give it the resources to do what it has the potential. So that would be my message. So on that theme with states being effective and vigorous and needing the funding to do their job, 
What do you think the role of state securities regulation is in our sort of dual state and federal system? Have you been seeing that change over time? What kind of role should the states play in this space? Let's look at it this way. If you were going to compare the regulators, let's compare it like this. And again, this is not where outside, high side. I can't do my job policing broker dealers without FINRA because they do most of that. We consider FINRA a co-regulator. But if you were trying to compare it to the criminal scheme out there and how people respond to, to things. Think of FINRA as the neighborhood watch. They keep track of everything going on in the neighborhood, especially with the broker dealers. They have powers too, but think about that. Think about the SEC as the FBI, big national stuff. And local police are the state securities regulators. Can we have a law enforcement community in this country without local law enforcement? No. Without the FBI and those federal aid? No. Can you do it without having the local community be involved. Nope. It takes all three. So if you look at it from the securities point of view, the state security regulators are the cop on the beat. We're the first ones that are going to hear about it. Look, if somebody robs your house, you don't call the FBI, you call the local police. And we're the local police when investors on Main Street are harmed. The SEC is more like the FBI, Secret Service, those are the bigger guns from the point of view of there's a national problem. There's a market manipulation. There's an Enron. There's a WorldCom. Yes, we have a role to play in that too, because even if you're the SEC, you need to know what's going on, on the ground level. And if we're on the ground level, we need the SEC and FINRA to help us with those analytics and maybe use some of the federal laws to work with the state laws. So you see that there is a method to the dual system. It's really more of a tri-system if you want to think about it. Because you've got SEC is doing the, the commodities and boy, are they going to be big in the crypto space and the precious metal space. Some of our biggest cases with the CFTC are joint actions that the state filed with the CFTC. There's a press release out from about two years ago. I had the honor of being the signatory to the NASA CFTC MOU for partnership in 2018. From that developed a great partnership with the CFTC that allowed us to bring these precious metals cases. Press release with the CFTC in the state said the largest case ever brought between CFTC and the state securities regulator. And we've had numerous cases like that after that. So you see, it takes all three of us working together. FINRA has the SRO co-regulator, if you want, SEC and CFTC on the federal level and the state securities regulators. Because you know what? There's plenty of work to go around. And if you need a witness from a local jurisdiction and you're a Fed on the Fed side, I'm the guy that's going to get it from you. If I need some help because I need more analysis, I can call the FINRA folks and say, help me with this analysis on this broker dealer or this product or what the trading records look like on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. So you see, the point of view is that unlike most countries of the world where not everybody's involved in the markets at the level that Americans are, and the markets aren't as big or as deep or as robust as the American markets. We need the three state and federal regulators, the three of us, CFTC, SEC, and state, and FINRA, who I consider, as I said, a co-regulator. Now, look, in any family, you're going to have disputes and disagreements. The one thing, we're all on the same path. We want the economy in the United States to be the state of the best in the world. We want our investors, Main Street investors, to have confidence in the system. And that's what we're all trying to accomplish. We have different little pathways, but we're in the same highway. Whether I'm in the right lane, the left lane, or the middle lane, 
or I happen to be stuck on a shoulder for a little while, we're all going in the same direction. So that's my view on where the role of the states are, where the role of the feds are, where the role of the SRO is, and where Main Street can depend on all of us to do the best we can to make things good for everybody. There are always improvements that we can do on state and federal cooperation. There are always some impediments. Sometimes they're political. Sometimes they're just operational. Let's face it, Finner's probably got the best of the security analysis for what's going on in the markets, especially for manipulation in the market. The SEC has got a tremendous footprint all across the country, and they have some laws that we like to use, and state laws and federal laws merge they mesh quite well. They're different. Sometimes it's easier for us to do the groundwork because the SEC is on a federal level. They don't have an office in Alabama. In many states, they don't. But when we work together, we work well and we can get things done. Think research channels cases, mutual fund timing. SEC was involved in our Morgan Kagan case. FINRA was involved in our Morgan Kagan case. And I can think of other cases along the line. And right now in the cryptocurrencies case, the states were first on the line to point out what's going on because we saw it from the ground level and we were first to ring the warning bell. But now you've got the SEC jumping in to fix it on a national level. State can't fix it on a national level. That takes the feds, but they need our help. We need their help. And there you have it. The United States is a unique place that allows investors to profit, take risk and profit. What we try and do is Make sure they understand the risks and give them advice on how to limit the risk. This is a fantastic perspective. When you're thinking about the cooperation that's necessary to keep these roads safe and to keep the economy humming in the right direction, do you think of any ways that you might want to change or you know, better coordinate federal and state cooperation? I don't know if they're behind the scenes conference calls. You guys get together every, every two weeks on a conference call or anything like that. What could be done? And you're absolutely right. We do have set times and calls. The Finner in the States by regions have calls all the time. We have open communications. Sometimes we think it might be a FINRA-related matter, and it's not. FINRA is good about referring stuff to us when they go, this is something on a state level that we don't have jurisdiction. Remember, FINRA doesn't have criminal jurisdiction. Neither does the SEC. A lot of states don't, but a lot of states do. And then we can involve our attorney generals if we need to, our DAs, whoever might require. FBI works with us. So on the criminal stuff, yes, we work quite well with our counterparts, remembering that the SEC is not a criminal law enforcement type agents. Very close, but not quite. FINRA is not. And so we can feed them information as we see it from the broker dealer side where they're concerned about. So I think as we continue, look, it's really a technology issue. It's really a new products issue. Who would have thought 10, 15 years ago that we would be involved in crypto bankruptcies coming out of our ears. Voyager, Celsius, FTX, Genesis, you name it. I could not have imagined that when I first started. Cryptocurrency didn't even exist until 2008 and didn't even come to the forefront until 2014. So look what has happened in a short period of time. And it took all of us to figure that out. And here we are. So I think there's always improvements. We always have an issue, what's called the state actor issue, but it's not a big issue as like some courts have made it out to be. Well, these are things that can all be fixed. I think one of the issues that we have is the relationships we have are not only technological and paperwork-wise, but they're personal. And people move. There's a lot of movement among the states, among the SEC, among the CFTC, and even among FINRA to some extent. Maybe less. We're lucky in Alabama that we've got some long-term employees that stay. But every time that there's a changeover, there's a new attempt to make those relationships continue because, let's face it, 
We're all people. We build on our relationships. There are people I trust. John Smith at FINRA or SEC gives me a word. It's going to get done. I can take it to the mic. Somebody new, I've got to develop that trust with. So one of the issues we see is the turnover rate. And that happens at the state level. It happens at the federal level. It happens at the SRO level. But there are things we can do there. We have to keep up with technology. And that's a big issue for us. And so we do look to see how our federal counterparts are doing with their technology. And can they give us some help on that score? So I think we continue. There's mandated by law at least once a year that the SEC and the states have to get together. We get together a lot more often than that, more on a regional level. But once a year, there's a mandate that we meet. And at NASA Spring Conference, there's always a meeting with the SEC. The SEC's there, sometimes Treasury's there and FINRA. And we all talk about what is it we want to plan for the next year. And then we have subsequent conversations. I don't think there's a time that I can't call the SEC and ask them a question. Whether they can give me information or not, depending on where the investigation is. Or sometimes I call up and they go, we don't know anything about that one. But they'll call me up and say, hey. This is Atlanta Regional Office. What do you know about Sessions? I don't know anything about that one. Let me tell you what we know. We do that with Finner constantly, and we do that with the CFTC as well as the SEC. So there is cooperation. It can always be better. It's not the end of the road. It's the journey that makes it worthwhile, and the journey is continuous. Joe, as we come to the end of the second part of our two-part extended interview with you, and it's been really just a pleasure and an honor to hear some of your insights and experiences, I wondered if there are any closing thoughts or words you'd like to leave our audience with. I would say this. The audience is probably more sophisticated than my normal Main Street investors, so you probably already know about the warning signs and things like that. But if you are listening to this and you have that kind of experience and you can share that with your community, we do a lot of programs. We just finished one Sunday service at a church and we found people were hungry for this kind of information. Reach out to your state securities regulators and say, hey, if I can help and if you're in the industry and you want something like this to partner up with us and some of the other states, we're more than happy to do that. We partner up with firms all the time to do outreach. Maybe it's a free seminar on how to keep your books and records. When we started our small business fundraising exemptions, we reached out to businesses and they responded. CPAs and lawyers said, you know what? I'll donate some time to help a new entrepreneur get started on a small business. What I'm suggesting is think creatively about what you can do to contribute. I was like contributing to folks who maybe need the help, maybe need to be able to avoid fraud, or maybe need to start a business and you have some information there, join us because that is what makes this country great. It's all working together. If you have an idea, run it by us. If you see something, say something. Now, I know early in my career, brokers never like to talk about other brokers they thought were doing things wrong. Like doctors don't like to talk on doctors and lawyers don't like to talk about lawyers are doing things wrong. But when we convinced the broker dealers, at least in our Southeastern region, that for every dollar that's stolen, that's a dollar less you may have under assets that you can help somebody with. I think they got the message because we do get a lot of leads from agents, stockbrokers and IAs who say, this new client came to me and I'm looking at what happened here. You might want to take a look at this. And that's helpful. So. Even the smallest piece of information could be helpful. It was a small complaint that brought us the Wolf of Wall Street case. It was a small complaint that brought us the Morgan Keegan case for us to look at. So that would be my message to the listeners. If you can help, do you have ideas, say it. If you've got information that would be helpful, let us know. And if you have questions, call us. Our guest today has been Joseph Bork. 
former director of the Alabama Securities Commission. I've been joined in this two-part special interview with Joe Borg by my co-host, Ben Edwards, associate professor of law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Joe, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. It's been an honor to be around with both of you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.